Let me be explicit. Right now, in this podcast, there's some explicit language. It's Friday, July 20th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Writing about the apartheid regime for Rolling Stone in the 1980s, P.J. O'Rourke said that every country in the world is racist. South Africa is the only one stupid enough to put it right there in the Constitution. I got to thinking about this idea when I was reading about the news of Israel. I'm not going to make the really insulting analogy between the actual apartheid state like they had in South Africa and the situation in Israel because their Arabs are full citizens with full rights, but they're also persecuted minorities and they're also, depending on where they live and which party serves them, a source of fear, suspicion, and a sort of grudging tolerance at best. So yes, they are certainly oppressed and some of that oppression is written into the law. What I am talking about though is the law passed by the Knesset pushed through by Bibi Netanyahu, which now defines Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, defines the task of directing the nation of Israel as unique to the Jewish people, does not include the ideal of democracy in that definition. Ideals. It's a funny thing about ideals. They seem to work better when they are lived in a general sense. Whenever we seek to get specific in our definitions of who we are, we tend to engage in a bigger definition of who we are not. In America, the Declaration of Independence is the ideal, and it is general, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Even the ideas in the Bill of Rights, which actually is law, work best when they're a bit vague. But when we start getting specific, we fall down. Like Here's a general idea. Give me your tired and your poor. Here's a specific enactment ban Muslims from these six countries. Here's a general idea. America is a land of opportunity. Here's a specific delineation of this idea. Redlining and poll taxes. Societies that are free and opened and functional tend to have a few general ideas laid out that everyone can point to, but in fact, they can mean different things to different people. And that's okay. That's not a flaw. But when we have to go back and spell out exactly what those ideals mean and who exactly they are for and who they are not for, we run into problems. And that is because the reason we go back and do that, the impetus for writing down the generally lived and felt ideas is usually defensive. When you codify your values, you often wind up diminishing them. People are bound by shared beliefs, and sometimes the best beliefs allow everyone to believe in them. On the show today, Geshpiel, Geshpiel, question, why don't the Republicans stop Trump by thwarting Kavanaugh? Answer, well, we defer to Zoe Chase. But first, from the time he burst onto the scene, Bobcat Goldthwait, okay, yes, I'm throwing the cliche flag on myself, but Burst onto the scene is apt when it comes to early Bobcat. He screamed, he snapped, he attacked all the sharp verbs. That was Bobcat. But for those who know him, he is a smart, funny, lovely guy, but also dark, plenty dark. And that is at play in his new series, Monsters and Misfits, on True TV. Bobcat, up next. Hi. 
Hi, this is Rachel Yucatel, and I'm here to invite you to listen to my podcast, Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel. This podcast delves into the lives of those who have been reduced to a single headline. Each episode will take a closer look at the stories of those who are on a mission to change their narrative. Join me as we uncover the truth behind the misconceptions, shed light on the stories of those who have perhaps been wrongfully portrayed, explore the complexities of the human experience, and celebrate the power of second chances. Who doesn't love a good comeback story? For years, the question around comic and director Bobcat Goldthwait was maniac or menace, but like a skilled <laughs> rhetorician, he knew he needed to reframe the debate. So now there is Bobcat Goldthwait's Misfits and Monsters, a new anthology series on True TV, which really as a brand is veering further and further from its name every day. Bobcat, how are you? I'm, I'm okie doke. <laughs> so this is uh, Twilight Zone-ish, Black Mirror-ish, but those are suspense and this is comedy and it shows, this has a point, but it's mostly for the comedic and I think it shows up in different ways. Right. Uh, including, and here's an observation, I think in the Twilight Zone, they, 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 they milk the suspense and they wait for the reveal of the monster. Right. Whereas in all the episodes, I saw boom, blam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I did do a suspense movie. I did a Bigfoot movie that was suspenseful. Uh-huh. Uh, just because I was wondering if I could do it. And there's like a shot in there that's 19 minutes long, and it, the camera doesn't move, and we're just inside a tent with this couple. And um, people seem to like it. It's, it's really scary. But the, that was really kind of what motivated me to make a Bigfoot movie. But how explicitly seen was Bigfoot in the movie? Do you really get to do see Do you want me close? to ruin it? Uh, well, no, yeah. <laughs> Wait, was the movie Harry and the Hendersons and yeah, I didn't know you were yeah, the director? <laughs> yeah, that's why like the Gore fans are really disappointed because yeah. I never gave them the money shot. And so they were bummed out. But I think Bigfoot is like the devil. I think if if you film Bigfoot, <laughs> people are going to go, that's not what Bigfoot looks like. Yeah. Because <laughs> they have it, you know, the, it, your own imagination, was, I thought, was would be better. Right. Bigfoot's greatest trick was convincing the world that his feet are not that big. They're not I don't that know big. what Bigfoot said. Well, okay. So we should talk about the other show because I could talk about Bigfoot all day. <laughs> Did you write uh, all the episodes of Misfits Yeah, I wrote Monsters? all the episodes and then I had a couple pals who were on board as producers that would basically pitch jokes and be there on the set. But I would, I, yeah, I came up with the stories and then I'd write them all. You know, I jokingly say I, I retired from acting the same time they stopped hiring me. But I, I really take directing really seriously, and I, I like the anonymous nature of, of my life and career now. Um, I really love what I'm doing. Like, often when people are were known as actors or whatever, and then they're behind the camera, it's like a plan B. But, mm-hmm. but to me, it's, it's, it's probably where I was always going, and I didn't realize it. Episode one is about a cartoon bear. <laughs> the plot of the episode is Seth Green uh, voices this beloved bear. Yeah. But he also feels trapped by the bear a little bit. Well, the- I mean, it, it manifests itself. It's not yes. even like subconsciously. It, the bear hates the way he makes him sound. And, uh, you know, why, 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 why you got to make me stutter? That's something funny for kids to laugh at. <laughs> I won't hurt you. I'm bear. It's a tradition, you know, Hugh Grant, you know, so uh, Porky Pig, Donald Duck. So Bubba the Bear just shows up it's, and, and tries to kill Seth. You tell anyone about our little tete-a-tete, I will send you straight to hell. It dawned on me that maybe it was a little autobiographical, and then you blow the cover off the thing in these, like, director's comments, not commentaries, but afterwards. So the bear is you in a little bit of a way. Well, one of my best 
pals since I was six years old is Tom Kenny, who's right. SpongeBob SquarePants and a bunch of other things. I don't want to name drop, but whatever. So, uh, <laughs> but there's a certain pineapple that's under the sea. Maybe yeah, I heard of maybe, it. <laughs> maybe I've been there. So uh, the germ of the idea was Tommy does do stuff. Like he does charity. He does go to schools. And, and so I kind of thought I was writing it about him. I don't know. It wasn't until I got done and my daughter was like, no, that's you, dummy. That's this character that you can't escape. <laughs> Maybe it, it didn't try to kill me, but financially, perhaps. But there's this persona that I had to come to grips with that that is bigger than life. But I was watching the episode the other day and I realized Bubba the bear starts saying things that I would say, mm-hmm. me. So maybe I am Bubba the Bear and I'm not Seth Green. Because Bubba at the end is like, he's like, you know, I was a bear, God damn it, and you made me in some kind of joke, you know? Yes. And, and this persona that I've been doing, you know, when I was a kid, I got on the when I was 20, you know, it wasn't homogenized, this, you know, wacky guy in Police Academy. It was this character that would show up and people were threatened and scared. It seems to me that we thought he was insane, but there were a lot of truths in the things you would say. Yeah, like, it was weird. There'd yeah. be a lot of material in there. And I don't know, you know, sometimes, like, I, here I am in this persona, and then I'm talking about <laughs> Oliver North and Iran Contra. I mean, that's how old, old that was. But so I kind of think folks that probably wouldn't agree with what I was saying were okay with this persona pointing out these hypocrisies and things. Oh, yeah. So if a demon, it was id, if the yeah. demon says it. Yeah, and then yeah. they were okay with it. Right. So, Well, I got, a, I got a great truth. This to me sounded like a crazy non sequitur at the time, but now we've learned how true it is. Scott Bayo <laughs> is the Antichrist. You right. would start off by right. saying Scott Bayo is the Antichrist. Oh, he just picked a random name of a loser actor. But I watched the RNC and you were right. I was, I, yeah, I, yeah, it'd be like, I'm just trying to do my act and I'd blurt out these non sequiturs. Scott Bay was the Antichrist. And then I was ego surfing, and Patton Oswald in an interview said, you know, Bobcat Goldthwait has been calling Bill Cosby a rapist on stage for 20 years. And I had, but I didn't know it was true. Yeah. I just got lucky. I just, <laughs> I, was, no, I, just I just always got a really creepy just have vibe. have a sense of these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a truth seeker. That's yeah. what I am. The divining rod. Just, or it's just yeah. like uh, shotgun blast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you say enough weird stuff, right. a couple things are going to pan out. The 400 other people. Well, I'm glad you like this show. Antichrist. So you saw three. I saw three. Um, you have a real Antichrist in number three. Yeah. Uh, Michael Ian Black. Michael Ian Black. Him. And that's the way to play him. Like a very benevolent guy, yeah. except for yeah, the one time. Time he turns in the seat. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I get into one of my moods and then I, I'm sorry. You want some water? Hey, Karen. Karen, can we get some water in here? Ice, no ice. I was trying to look in the background. So he's, uh, he has like. <laughs> he's a, in sales yeah, now. He's in well, sales. Very he's like shipping, yeah. Somewhat dingy office, but all those inspirational cat posters and <laughs> yeah, stuff. Yeah, wow, you really them. did look. Yeah. 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 Well, that's really my cat in one of them. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Alice Cooper uh, is climbing in the toilet bowl, and that's one of the photos in the back. I'm going to take a shot at this. It wouldn't surprise me. Do you know Alice Cooper, and does he like your act? Yeah, I've spoken with him. I, I was on his Christmas card list uh, before nice. I moved a few times. Nice. And I, I've always related to that, too. There's always this, I don't know, there's something about Alice and then uh, the other side of Alice, you know. But the thing about him, so, okay, let's say he has this persona, and people, and right. his persona is also his name, so he's not exactly playing a part. But he seemed really in control of his persona, whereas I thought that maybe at times, like, you did 
more or less, not just in episode one of Misfits and Monsters, but you did more or less kill off the Bobcat character. Right. I mean, that had to be a decision I made because it was part of me would deliver the character out of a little bit out of laziness. But there's also this working class ethic. I knew people paid their hard earned money and they wanted to see, you know, me do Freebird. And if I didn't do it, it'd be disappointing. So much easier to just do it. And then I was at the Zanies in Nashville one night and I said, I'm not going to do it. And I went up and told stories. It was really strange, you know, people were yelling <laughs> for the character, but I, I stood my ground. So. And, and then from there, you haven't looked back? Yeah, yeah, I don't. Well, that's good. I, when yeah. was that? What year was that? It was years ago. I mean, I still do it for like uh, animated voice or something, but but uh, it's, yeah, I, I, I no longer would perform that way. It was an exorcism at yeah. the Zanies where many great exorcisms occur. Yeah. I mean, the cool thing too, though, is I'm often in front of young crowds who don't have that expectation of me because they don't know who I am. And I and I actually like that a lot. Bobcat Goldthwait's Misfits and Monsters airs on True TV Wednesday nights at 10. Thank you, Bobcat. Thank you. There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. And now the spiel. There doesn't seem like much that can be done to stop the appointment of Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. The Republicans hold a slim majority in the Senate, but the possibility of defection lies somewhere between a pipe dream and a West Wing third act shockeroo, which is not how real politicians act. To a conservative, Brett Kavanaugh is basically like a gentler Antonin Scalia come back to life, scraping away all his rough edges and coaching a girls basketball team. But to a liberal, Kavanaugh is something else. And opposing him seems like a good idea to people who don't already like his ideas. Here's Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat, Connecticut. All we need is one of our Republican colleagues, whether it's Jeff Flake or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, to say enough is enough. The Supreme Court is really too sacrosanct. My friend and former just guest host, Zoe Chase, whose beat is essentially understanding how conservatives think, has been thinking about that line of thought you just heard, which has been emanating from people who definitely don't think like conservatives. I said to Zoe, luckily, you have a friend who has an institution, and that institution is known as the Spiel, and your friend, me, can rent you out the Spiel whenever he feels like it. I bet you didn't know that. The Spiel's like an Airbnb of podcast rhetorical space. So I gave Zoe the keys and told her to have at it. Okay, this is the issue. I'm really frustrated by people who want Republican senators to block Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court. This is the thing that's making me upset. People on the Internet yelling at Jeff Flake, senator from Arizona, Bob Corker, senator from Tennessee, retiring Republican senators. If you want to stop Trump, do something about it. Stop your sad statements, your sad tweets, your cute little speeches. 
that are like, oh, Trump is practically treasonous. Trump has really disappointed me. I never thought I'd see the American president do blah, 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 blah. If you really cared about all that, then you'd withhold your vote for Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Jeff Flake put out a fine statement. John McCain put out an incredibly tough statement. Uh, It's almost like someone needs to remind these guys that... um, they're some of the most powerful people on planet Earth. Particularly... Hold up the, a Supreme Court nominee. Right. I was going to say, particularly <laughs> with the fact that the Senate right now is 50-49 without right. McCain there. They have You have a lot of power in the Senate, particularly when uh, the margin is that close. Those are the Pod Save America boys. But this whole idea, this whole feeling is everywhere. It's all over Twitter. It's not just the Democrat podcasters. It's not just Obama holdovers. It's a lot of journalists, journalists that I like. I also like the Pod Save America boys. But anyway... If you really hated Trump, you'd withhold your Supreme Court vote for Trump's nominee. And I'm here to say, no, (laughs) that is exactly what they wouldn't do. That is a fundamental misunderstanding of how they think about themselves as Republicans. A guy like Brett Kavanaugh, that is a repudiation of Trump's Republican Party. Brett Kavanaugh is like a victory for the pre-Trump Republican Party, the Republican Party that these guys signed up for before Trump came along and took that party over. I spent a ton of time with Jeff Flake and his staff over the last year, and the thing that made me so crazy during that time was Democrats treating him like he was part of the resistance because he can't stand Trump and they can't stand Trump. That's the only thing pretty much that Democrats and Jeff Flake have in common. Like, Flake is a conservative. Here are things that Flake doesn't like. Entitlements, abortion, higher taxes, more regulation. Here are things that Flake does like. Free trade, school choice, religious liberty. He's on the right. That's his deal. He's on the right. That's where he wants the Supreme Court to be. He wants the Supreme Court to be on the right of issues that he cares about. And so in particular... At this moment of all moments, why would the flakes and the corkers of the Senate abandon that principle? That's their last principle that they're holding on to in a sea of Trumpism that is sweeping them out of office. They became senators in order to take votes like these, in order to put conservatives on the Supreme Court. Brett Kavanaugh is who they would have chosen anyway. That is their dream Supreme Court justice. Voting for that guy isn't a vote for Trump. It's a vote for their conservative principles. So on this issue, who should be nominated to the Supreme Court? They are with Trump. In fact, I bet they think they're more with Trump than Trump even is. Conservative principles, that's what these guys are so precious over. That's what they're always standing on the Senate floor. Well, Jeff Flake in particular, standing there and kind of eulogizing over Voting for Brett Kavanaugh is a way for them to preserve those principles. Pre-Trump Republicanism, the thing that they signed up for, the thing that they care about, that doesn't really exist anymore. It only exists through the lens of these few Republicans left, like the Flakes, the Corkers, and yeah, the Mitch McConnells, the John Cornyns, like the Republican establishment or whatever. The way that those guys preserve the Republicanism they want, the kind of Republican Party that they want, is by voting for someone like Brett Kavanaugh. Jeff Flake loves Brett Kavanaugh. I talked to him about it. Bob Corker told Politico, why would I cut off my nose to spite my face? I like the Supreme Court nominee. So what the heck? So when you're like, yo, you guys are in Congress. You have the power to stop the president. Do something about Trump. 
think about who you're asking to do the thing. Because they'd probably be like, oh, I am. I am doing something about Trump. I'm making the Supreme Court better. And you, you ice-abolishing, non-dairy-drinking, single-payer, World Cup-watching hippie wingnut, you are talking to the wrong guy about the thing you want. You want to talk about Brett Kavanaugh? Go talk to Joe Manchin. That was Zoe Chase, producer for This American Life. With a counterpoint now, here is Senator Joe Manchin. No, I'm kidding. No, Joe Manchin. We had our quote of senators in the last couple weeks named after stately homes, and that was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. But thank you, Zoe Chase, whose report, The Impossible Dream, aired on This American Life in April. I believe it should be the best piece of political radio journalism this year. And that is it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader have outsourced their jobs today to Sarah Saracen, Laura Lorson, and Rob Robinson. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has been made possible by a grant for a more peaceful, verdant, translucent, redolent of lilac and imbued with that feeling of security and well-being the Germans call Gamutlichkeit society. The gist with help today from Tori Malatia, who used these words to request that I not mention his involvement. You tell anyone about our little tete-a-tete. I will send you straight to hell. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.